Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. Before we start, I want to thank my latest Patreon subscribers, Emma and Lawrence, for their support and all my Patreon subscribers for their continued support. This podcast would struggle to continue without them, and my Patreon page has become a great place to learn about and to chat about all aspects of conducting. There'll be more about my Patreon page later on in this episode. Today, I conduct a conversation with an American conductor who can count Leonard Bernstein, Michael Tilson Thomas and Sir Simon Rattle, among others, as being his teachers and mentors. He's possibly best known as being the Professor of Conducting at the University of Music and the Performing Arts in Vienna since 2004. It's a pleasure to welcome Mark Stringer. Mark, it's wonderful to see you, uh, to speak with you. I would say meet with you, but we met oh, a million years ago um, when, in, when I was a player and you were assisting with the CBSO. But how are you? I'm doing as well as one can be in the current COVID conditions. I'm, it, generally, I'm doing really well. Um, um, also, emotionally, right now, we are recording it on, a, on in a week where Austria is beginning to shut down completely and with, you know, the whole travel bans with the new variant and stuff like that. So I have a sort of Groundhog Day feeling right now, which I'm having to deal with. Um, yeah. um, the whole question of how are any of us getting through the, 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 the earthquake in our profession that, that the COVID crisis has presented to us and the fact that we, just as we think, okay, we're, there's light at the end of the tunnel, we're getting out of this, boom. Yeah. Back to square one. And so this is a little bit tricky for me to deal with at the moment. But um, in general terms, as any Brit would have asked me, I'm being very American in my response, taking your <laughs> question seriously. Um, uh, yes, I'm doing fine. Mark, I do my homework. Um, I go to Wikipedia. I've gone to your website. I know exactly where you studied, even who, who you studied with. But I don't know what instruments you play and when music first came into your life. When did music come into your life? Are you from a musical family or did it just appear out of the blue in your family? No, I'm a freak in my, right. in my, uh, I, they don't know where I came from in my family. My family has always been music lovers, but not musicians. Mm, mm. When did I get into music? At a really seriously early age, maybe. My mother tells the story of and I remember vividly, but when I was about two or three years old, I heard the Tchaikovsky 1812 probably on the radio. Mm. And I pestered her to get me that record. I called it the Boom Boom record. I mean, I'm ashamed <laughs> that what didn't impress me was Tchaikovsky's counterpoint or anything like that. It was the <laughs> canons at the end. Yeah. But I wanted to have that record. And I, and I remember getting it. And I remember the house that I was in when I got it for my birthday. So that meant I could not have been older than three years old. Um, it started there. By the time I was five or six, I could parrot all the words in Magic Flute because the second record I pestered my mother to buy was the um, 1951, I think, um, Carl Burns' uh, Magic, Magic Flute. Mm. And I listened to it so ad nauseum that I could parrot all of the words, having no idea what they meant, but I could do the <laughs> sounds. And I had a good enough ear that I could sing them on pitch. 
And so before my voice changed, one of my party tricks was to sing the second Queen of the Night aria. Wow. Um, and, uh, you know, so I was a freak of nature. <laughs> and so by the time I was five or six years old, I started piano lessons. That's my main instrument. I must have always known I wanted to be a conductor. There is a portrait of me when I think I was three or four years old. My mother commissioned a portrait of the kids my sister and my brother mm. and my dog um, at the time. <laughs> and, um, and she insisted that the painter paint me with a stick in my hand because I was always going around as a toddler with a stick in my hand, waving my arms. <laughs> uh, again, she should have sold a psychiatrist. And, and <laughs> instead, she did the next smartest thing. She got me piano lessons. Mm. And where I will, to my dying breath, honor my parents, uh, my mother's still living, my father passed almost exactly a year ago, um, uh, uh, where I will, to my dying breath, honor my parents is, they did not know anything about music or the music profession, mm. but they saw, they sensed that th this was something I loved and was obsessed by, and they sought out the people who did know about the music profession, in Atlanta, Georgia, where I wound up growing up, um, sought out the people who knew what to do with me. Mm. And instead of us, instead of, you know, just sending me to the local piano teacher and then, you know, that's a nice hobby, but you're going to be a lawyer, you're going to be a musician, you're going to be a football player. Um, they sought out the people who knew what to do with someone like me. Mm. And put me, one of the first things they did was got me, um, since I seemed to have a voice and could carry a tune, I'm completely on pitch, put me into a boy choir, um, the Atlanta boy choir, who had an amazing conductor who taught us about self-discipline, about the discipline of the profession, about the discipline of learning music instilling me to this day, the fanatical obsession with being on time, mm -hmm. um, ending on time, planning a rehearsal, learning your parts before you go in, all these professions. And we're talking about this eight, nine-year-old child. I was in this square from maybe eight years old to 14 years old when my voice broke. Um, international tours, international recordings. There's somewhere in the world a, a blackmail copy of me <laughs> singing the alto solo to Schubert's Stentchen uh, for alto solo and male choir, um, which was recorded in the, the well, I, uh, I think it's Casino Borgensil, I forget which, which there's a, a casino uh, here in Vienna, mm. uh, which is used as a recording studio. All of Harnincourt's cantatas were recorded in, um, uh, in that recording studio. And so I, among the many things I did when I was 12 years old, uh, I came to Vienna on a national international tour and made a recording, uh, that time vinyl LP, mm. um, of Schubert songs, including the Stentia. Uh, so someone has a copy of that. I'm sure my has <laughs> I'll, I'll find it and drop it. Yeah, I'll find yeah, it and yeah, drop it into the podcast. <laughs> there's, lot, there's enough YouTube blackmail material on me as a student to plague me for the end of my days. They sought out um, the music director of the Atlanta Symphony, Robert Shaw, the great, amazing, legendary choral conductor. Mm. Um, 
uh, when I was old enough to be in touch with them, they, they, they got me in touch with the people who knew what to do with me. Mm. And bless their hearts, they, in that way they supported me, in the smartest way they could. They didn't interfere, and they would drive me from gig to gig and from lesson to this and that and that. And so there were violin lessons, there were bass, there were trumpet lessons, but mainly piano. Um, I was already, as a teenager, making a nice little bit of side income, which they appreciated. Um, mm. As a, By that point, when I was in my later teens, uh, 16, 17, 18 years old. I had a reputation in Atlanta as being someone who could basically sight read anything at the piano and could play fast mm. and knew enough about languages and about singing that especially singers and choruses loved to have me work with them. But there was also lots of chamber music I was doing. I was basically slave labor for a lot of Atlanta musicians. Uh, and I soaked it up because I came to Juilliard at the age of 17 in the conducting student studies. I came to Juilliard at 17 with uh, a, just a sort of a, already a knowledge of chamber music repertoire, lead repertoire, symphonic repertoire. One of the things I would do as a teenager, uh, the Atlanta Symphony had at that time a program where volunteers could uh, uh, volunteer as ushers at the symphony concerts and then be allowed to watch the concerts for free mm. and i did that for many years and boy that introduced me to so many pieces the Osrael symphony which has become a big piece of my repertoire heard for the first time there many of the brahms symphonies i still have my copy of the brahms dover brahms symphonies autographed by claudio bado in the backstage of the atlanta symphony um i mean this was just they put my parents put me in the right spot to become the person I have become, and I could have so easily gotten the wrong teacher mm. and burnt out, or I could have not developed a talent. Uh, Steve Steve Sondheim, you know, rest in peace. Uh, there's a quote of his: "Everyone is born with a talent; not everyone develops it." Yeah. So they um, uh, they just allow me to develop it to the point that I was just good enough. I had been accepted into Liam Fleischer's or um, um, Anne Rice's um, program, at, a piano program at Peabody Institute as a, uh, when I was in my senior year. And I auditioned I, and I was accepted for the piano department of William Marcellos at Juilliard as a pianist, but I just took the dive and auditioned for the conducting program at 17 years old. I'd never been in front of an orchestra <laughs> other than my high school orchestra. I remember, the, and the program was Brahms III and Stravinsky Firebird. And what I remember is the Brahms III raising my stick up like I saw every other conductor do. <laughs> and I looked at Robert Shaw's George Zell influenced score and copied everything down. All the, all, all, you remember him and, um, yes. very, um, and how all of his parts were micromanaged to, a, to the nth degree. And I copied all of those markings into my score. And so I raised my, you know, and probably I even tapped my stick, who knows? I, you know, doing <laughs> what I thought a conductor should do. And I was noticing in Brown's three first movement, 17 years old, you know, no business conducting that piece, but 17 years old, Brown Street, raising everyone up, and the trombones are sitting back in their stools with their instruments down. And so I give them a maestronic, glaring look. <laughs> Get your instruments up, you know. 
And I start, and as I give the upbeat and I look down and I say, oh my word, the trombones don't play until the third measure. Oh, how <laughs> I've never made that mistake ever again. Um, and, but what my eventual teacher at Juilliard said, I was finding misprints in the Stravinsky Firebird mm. that no one else had heard, including all the famous conductors, had not corrected these parts. And I was hearing a lot of misprints to the point that he asked me, can you please go on? It's really impressive, but can you please go on? Um, um, and he said, that's what got me in. Mm. But he noticed that I had an ear. And who, and, was, who was that teacher at Juilliard? Okay, that uh, Juilliard had a schizophrenic program where half of the time we were with Sixten Erling and half of the time we were with an American conduct, American Mexican slash conductor, George Mester, Jorge mm. Mester. Um, an amazing pedagogue, an amazing American conductor, very famous for all the recordings of modern music that he did with the Louisville Symphony. Mm. Um, and, and I'm now at an age where I'm older than he was when he was teaching at Juilliard. So I'm looking back, so, oh, that's how it felt. And that's what we seemed like as students. Oh, mm. what, how annoying I must have been. <laughs> um, but, um, and so George was very much on the psychology of rehearsal, the planning of rehearsal, how to be professional. Um, things to think about. Six and Erling was much more about the technique and about um, how to study a score and see misprints and how and structure a score, a very compelling score. So between the two of them, I wound up completely without any technique at all because it was so schizophrenic. <laughs> it really, that you, you, it was uh, like a child uh, who has a bilingual parents, you know, they, they, they can change language in the middle of a sentence up to yes. a certain age. Um, uh, and not notice that they've changed. Well, that was us at Juilliard. We would walk into the room on any given day, see which teacher was in the room and then become that conductor. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, uh, we just learned how to be good minds. Uh, and I wound up with a lot of repertoire. Juilliard had its own orchestra just for the conductors, as Vienna does. I, yeah. That's what I appreciate about Vienna. Vienna has an orchestra just for the conductors to work on in-house. We don't have to go outside at all. And so we can, and so my students and I at the Juilliard have wound up with repertoire for ages, mm. um, uh, which has served me endlessly ever since. There's so much repertoire that I can still remember. Oh, I remember that as a student. Now I can start building on that maybe bad experience, but at least by the time I was 20 years old, I had conducted five of the Mahler symphonies and most of the Beethoven symphonies and all of the Brahms symphonies. Wow. And, you know, and that's because of the program at Juilliard. And of course, badly. And none of this I had any business conducting and um, a lot of pieces burned me. And I never, I will never in my life ever for a million dollars conduct the Mozart 39th Symphony in E flat major. I was so burned by my first experience at Juilliard that I just, I, I break out into a sweat when I have to teach it um, in front of a student. I have to deal with it because I, I just have a sort of primal reaction to it. There are a couple of those pieces that I just never want to come back to. What a luxury for you to have an orchestra. Oh, tell me about it. And not oh, just the two pianos. Um, and and oh, so I, I, many of my colleagues don't have this luxury. They can't even no. imagine what it's like to have an in-house orchestra. Mm. And at what point and, did you 
did you do what we all have to do as pupils, which is try and assimilate whether Erling's approach was good, whether Jorge Mester's approach was good, uh, and which bit to take from which to form a Mark Stringer. When did you do that? Uh, or, uh, I mean, did that, was that over a long period of time or did you? Was I would say it's a long period of time and much longer because two things happened in between, uh, shall we say, um, leaving Juilliard and what I say, having a career, mm. uh, um, was coming into the realm of simultaneously, I would say a little bit, first Michael Tilson Thomas mm. was maybe the first seriously major conductor to notice me, take me under his wing. Uh, um, uh, Stanislav Skorbachevsky mm. was mentoring me, but I was at that point not really too young and dumb to really be cognizant of how amazing a figure he was at my disposal. Mm. But so sweet, learned so much about Berkner from him. But Tilson Thomas took me under his wing. And then very shortly after that, Bernstein, Len Bernstein took me under his wing. And then about five years later, when Bernstein died, sort of Simon immediately stepped into Tanglewood and took me under his wing. <laughs> and so I was in the years I other conductors would be finding themselves, I was in the position of melding my ego into these enormous musical figures who were. You know, it, I knew at the time, and I was warned by Bernstein's agent, you know, watch out, this will happen to you. Hmm. Um, it, uh, it's a Faustian bargain. You know when you're going under the wing of these massive musical giants in the profession that, A, you will not be able to offer anything really on their level. So it hmm. won't be a 50-50, it's a 90-10. Hmm. And you will be just sucked into their musical persona. Yeah, yeah. On the other hand, what one would learn from that musical persona at like two meters away from the face of the sun. Mm. Yes, you're gonna get burned, but you're gonna feel a heat and a light that no one else experiences. It is a Faustian bargain. Mm. So in those years where other people were finding themselves, I was losing myself. Mm. Mm. And on the, on the advice of Sir Simon, who saw this happening, he said, get out of America, go to Europe, find someplace isolated where they don't care what big conductor X and Y did. Mm. They just want you to deliver a job. Mm. Go to this isolated place, disappear for the next five years, find out exactly as you say, find out who Mark Stringer is, and then let us rediscover you. Mm, mm. So that was me moving to Bern in Switzerland. Um, one of my Juilliard colleagues had become, Andreas Dels, had become the music or the chief conductor at the Opera House and invited me along as a Kapellmeister for the ride mm. um, and substitute music director. And uh, I had all sorts of titles there. But basically learn from scratch what works for Mark Stringer. Mm, mm. And that's where... I just I found out what worked from Mester, as you say, what worked from Mester. A lot worked from Erling. Boy, that prepared me in a way I was not prepared for. Uh, expecting that prepared me for the opera pit, the Capellmeister. Mm. That worked <laughs> with the orchestra, and 
anything emotive in the way uh, that I had gotten from Bernstein, totally no reaction from the orchestra. Mm. It's not that it didn't work. It got nothing from the orchestra. <laughs> wow. Because it wasn't me. Yes, it wasn't yeah, yeah. me. It was me imitating someone that I thought I would be. Yeah. I hadn't found where my gut was and how to express it in my way. I also hadn't found the composers that appealed to me. I, I was doing the composers that appealed to Simon or to, to Bernstein or to Tilson Thomas. But the pieces where I said, well, you know, actually, I like Bruckner a lot more than I like Mahler. Mm. And that's where I began to, especially with Schubert and Bruckner, where the pieces where I thought, okay, this, these pieces I know how to do. Mm. The composer that Bernstein noticed me, and, and to this day, I, it, it's like falling off a log, would be Copeland. Yeah. yeah. And Bernstein saw me the first time, and um, he, he said he'd known me for many years, but he said, the first time I saw you was when you were conducting the Third Symphony of Copeland. And then, as, and then he thought, oh, this is, this, is, this is special enough for me to pay attention to. Um, and so, so, you know, I began to find the composers that I had something to say about, as opposed to repeating what Simon or repeating what Bernstein or repeating what um, Tilson Thomas um, um, told me. Yeah. So can I ask the current Mark Stringer, who's a little bit older than me, I looked at you, you're the same age as my wife. Um, can I ask the current Mark Stringer if he could go back to the young Mark Stringer and talk to him about the Faustian bargain you've just uh, mentioned would you would you say to him mark go for it or would you say to him mark you know don't go for it or or, or somewhere in the middle what would you say to the young mark stringer in well, his I early 20s said, uh, oh yeah i mean trust me i have dealt with this almost obsessively um um ever since would if if given the option would i repeat it for all the negative things, you know, the way that it almost radioactively burned me in many ways. I, 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 I think I would probably tell the young Mark Stringer, calm down and take the razor blades off of your elbows mm. and stop being um, a blithering idiot <laughs> and stop pushing so hard and being so miserable because you don't think you belong to be where you are. Mm. Stop that. Just calm down. Your talent will get you where you are going to go. Mm. Mm. Would I reject a master, the first masterclass with Tilson Thomas and then the subsequent jobs assisting him that he gave me? I would hope no, but um, I wouldn't reject it. I would. I would do the Faustian bargain again, but I would mm. hope maybe if I could give my older brain to the younger Mark Stringer yes, so that yeah, yeah. I would have more tools to deal with the side effects of mm. it. Mm. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. And I, I, I keep telling myself, and you know, but any psychiatrist would say, and I tell my students as well uh, when they're going on journeys of, in their life, it's like, everything you do, good or bad, makes you the person you become. I would not be in Vienna teaching had I not had these experiences. Mm, mm, absolutely. So therefore, true. would I give it up? No, I would hope that I would be friendlier and less competitive and less insecure about why I was where I am. Because from the day one, 17 years old, conducting Brahms three, I should not by any definition have been there. <laughs> but I was and I got through. Yeah. And, and instead of thinking, oh, I'm bluffing all the time, I should have just thought, okay, I'm here and just 
calm down and learn and take, as I say, take the razor blades off of the elbows. <laughs> well, I'm going to jump really a long yeah. way ahead because I know yeah, we'll go back on on assisting and on you know guesting and also opera but in 2004 you've mentioned it a couple of times now your, your pupils in 2004 you became professor of conducting at the university of music and performing arts vienna um following on from people like clemens kraus hans sorofsky whose name has appeared on this podcast many 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 times um when you talk about assisting so i'm sort of starting uh, you know with your current world and then and talking about your pupils when you talk to your pupils about assisting what advice do you give them about being becoming an assistant or a or mental okay. shadowing another big name conductor because because you know as you say the three careers i've had the assistant conductor then the career conductor yes, and then yeah. the teacher and right now i identify more as a teacher than an actual professional Conducting, I say on my gigs, but most of my life, especially since COVID, is now teaching. Yeah, yeah. And it's also where I found the Mark Stringer, who is maybe the most genuine, mm -hmm. um, um, and where I'm in my Zen place. Hmm. I, there's just something about me that when someone else gets it, whatever that is, yeah, and I recognize my fingerprints on it, helping said person to get it. Mm. That almost is more euphoric and reduces me many times to tears than having done it myself. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so uh, your question was in 2005, uh, assisting, teaching assistant, uh, the, the project of teaching assistant. Yeah. Okay, that project always, always involves being a great mimic. Hmm. You have to be exceptionally smart. Mm. To be a to be a, a, a good assistant, a useful assistant at the highest level of the profession. We're not talking mid conductor X. We're talking the Carrions, the Giulinis, the Clivers, you know, the, yes. the, the Gergiefs of the world, the Telemans of the world. And they do have their assistants. I tell them first of all, always tell the truth. Yes, Telemann, Cliver, Carrion needs from the assistant to hear the truth about what's going on. Now, don't bluff. Yeah. Don't pretend that you know what you don't know. But in terms of balance, in terms of are you convinced? Does it not work? Did this work better last night than before or tonight or whatever? No one needs to be ashamed about not having Carrion's experience or Giulini's experience. They need to hear the truth. Yes. Absolutely. That's what Simon respected me the most of. He said in front of the Vienna Philharmonic, he's the truth teller. Because mm. everyone, there was a very difficult spot when Adam and Sophie Mutter in the Dvorak Violin Concerto Second Moment. You know, as a violinist, how tricky that piece is to balance. Mm. And Simon was trying to get them down and trying to get them down. And he returned back to me in the hall. This I was there as, a, as in my professor role. I was just visiting. I was not assisting. But he trusted me. So we turn around and say, do we got it yet? And I would shake my head, nope. <laughs> and we, they got to the spot where they were thinking it's good enough. And they turned around and I still said, not yet. It's mm. not close yet. And I said, he's the truth teller. And so they did one notch more and, and, and everyone went, oh yeah, that's where we should have been. You took, tell the truth. When you're looking at a person, famous conductor, what? whatever and you're then knowing that you famous conductor is going away and you have to do the rehearsals in their place mm. you're you have one chance usually to see what famous conductor is doing mm. if you're lucky you have one chance 
you notice everything and you mm. mark it down you mark it down you don't leave anything to memory you mark it down but that won't help you imitate said person you have to get into their mindset you have to figure out okay why does conductor x make the transition this way and not that way mm. why is conductor x in four and not two why is conductor x changing the score here so you have to become their brain mm. Mm. so that when you imitate them you have a fighting chance of doing something vaguely recognizable mm. Mm. and helpful the to the process as well of a long bitter experience is do not try to imitate them physically <laughs> no, no, wait, no, do the transitions you know conduct in four where X is doing in four and but don't try to imitate them physically because it will never work. You do your technique mm. with the information you've got from conductor X. So this is where, again, getting into the mindset, understanding why they're doing what they're doing, not what they're doing, but why they're doing what they're doing. Then you can translate that in to your own technique. Mm. Um, this is also how you keep your own personality as a system. Don't become a, a copy of Kari or Julie, whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. To do that, you have to be able to think on your feet at the speed of light. Mm. And you have to be willing, as well, to a certain moral point, to let's let's say it's like improvisation. There is no no as an assistant conductor. There is a yes and. Mm. Um, so when, in our experience, um, I remember a Macropolis case in Aix-en-Provence mm. and the tuba player, what was it? Was, it the, was that the tuba player who died of a heart attack or did he just get sick? But no. there was a tuba player who dropped out from one performance, right, like 12 hours before a performance. Not enough time to get a replacement. They called around and they were calling because it's Aix in Provence, not the easy spot to, to get to, to. They they tried Munich, they tried Berlin, they tried everywhere in the world. They could not get a tuba player in X in time for the performance. So Simon called me up about eight o'clock in the morning and said, Look, this is what happened. Um, can you please figure out where the tuba is irreplaceable hmm. and reorchestrate so that we won't notice that the tuba is not played there? And we'll have a reading room, a sound check at let's say five o'clock or something like that, and go through the spots that you've identified. And my job was to look at the score, analyze the score where the tuba player has to be playing, mm. reorchestrate. So I had to have a knowledge of instrumentation, reorchestrate so that at the right octave, the notes are being produced that the tuba player had to play write out the parts in a professional manner that the CBSO could deal with. Yes. So not scribbled on paper, but I actually luckily had a laptop computer, had Finale, I could, and had a printer. And so I could write it on the Finale so that you had computer printed parts. So in other words, my job, I had to do at a world-class level. Yeah. And have them on the parts, in pasted into the music at the right moment, at the right spots, without any help, I didn't have an assistant, I had to do that. Yeah. And have it all on the stand, on time for a five o'clock read through, right? Let's call it five o'clock. It might've been six. At any rate, didn't have a whole lot of time. No. 
didn't have any time to go to the bathroom or have any meal or anything like that. I just, what? You do not tell Simon Rattle, oh no, that's not physically possible, Simon. <laughs> no, you don't. No. You say, true. yes, okay, let me get it. Stop talking to me, let me get on this. You'll have yeah. the parts in time. And the CBSO had the parts in time. He did that rehearsal. He went from, I gave him a list of all the spots I changed. He just, boom, 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 boom. This is the life of the assistant. You don't say no. You jump. And so another instance was when Simon was doing Valkyrie uh, recently, and he, you know, was very apologetic. I know you're way older and did, you know, but but I need you to be on the Valkyrie team when I recorded it in, in Munich. Mm. I need you to be part of the team still because it's going to go so fast and I just need to have you by myself to tell me the truth. And I need you to do these rehearsals. So we had to have someone experienced enough to stand in front of the virus and conduct them without breaking a sweat. This, at that point, no problem. Yeah. Um, but then when they got there, they, they said, oh, bad news. There's no space for the Valkyries on the stage next to him. So he will not be able to see the Valkyries. So you're going to have to conduct the Valkyries in the concert and the recording, live <laughs> recording. Okay, no problem. One day later, second day of rehearsal. Oh, bad news. They aren't going to be able to give you a stand with a light so you won't be able to see anything. You're going to have to do it by memory. Hmm. Can you do that? No, the Valkyrie scene. The, the head coach from the Vienna State Opera, who was also part of the team, I told him this. I said, there's no way. No one conducts the Valkyries because they have no idea where to point. Zubin yeah. Mehta told me, he just basically throws his hands every couple of beats up into the air and he knows that someone will sing. He has no <laughs> idea who sings what, whether it's Grimhilder or Grimgilder or Orthindor. Yeah. <laughs> um, I didn't tell Simon, oh no, that's not physics. That's not humanly possible. Not even Zubin Mehta or Karyan knows the Valkyrie scene by memory mm, mm. Of, of actually who sings what, when, mm. where. We all know the tunes, but we don't know who sings what, when, where. Uh, by memory. And so I you know, I said, Simon, fine, go. What I need, and so I went to the website because the Valkyrians hadn't arrived yet. So I had no idea who these ladies were. I went to the website. I, I found press photos of all these singers. Mm. I photocopied them, pasted the face of the person singing the part next to their cues. So I didn't think about whether it's Schwertlinde or Ortlinde or something. I just saw, oh, the blonde soprano and the... And the mm. um, uh, and the Jamaican soprano and and the rather elderly alto and stuff like that. I just did it by faces. Oh, that's ingenious. Memorize the faces, yeah. memorize the cues, got through it. Yeah, yeah. You that's just don't know. You just figure out a way to achieve the impossible and then you feel really chuffed afterwards. <laughs> so that's like what I told my students. But And then I do projects with them where... I will conduct a rather difficult transition with a, a piece with a difficult transition and I'll conduct it once in front of them. Mm. And then they have to imitate me to the T. Yeah, yeah. I will do another piece. Let's say I have a student who has done a lot of work with historical instruments. So I'll take a piece of Mozart and conduct it very consciously like Klemper. Mm. <laughs> and then Mr. Harnicore here has to imitate Klemper. Yes. And then I'll have some student who has not paid any attention to the HIP pra um, um, performance practice um, and thinks that Carl Berm is the 
end all and be all of Mozart's style, and I will then conduct Mozart in my most ridiculously over Norrington way. Yes. And so, yeah. okay, you got to do that, and you got to be convincing. Yeah. Yeah. You can't That's... mock me. You can't turn your notes up. It. You have to conduct it the way that I just conducted, and convince the orchestra that that's the way you want to conduct it. And for some of it, it's an easy trick, and for some of them, they just don't get it. And those people will then not be asked by the Ivan Fishers or the Gergivs or the Tillemans of today's world to assist them. Mm -hmm. Going back, was, yeah, going back. The most important thing: tell the truth. Yeah. Tell yeah. the truth with diplomacy. Tell the truth with humor. Find out the kinds of things that make various conductors laugh mm. to reduce tensions. This saved me in a Bernstein recording session. Bernstein hated to make retakes of the video concert, the video portions. Oh, yes. Yeah. The day after the quote live recordings, mm. they had to go back onto the concert the day after in concert clothing with stage television lighting and do retakes. He <laughs> loathed them and he was in such a horrific mood, <laughs> such a really pissy, really prima donna mood. And the Deutsche Grammophon team loved me. Hans Weber just adored me, his, his executive producer. Um, loved me because I knew Leonard Bernstein was an addict of British London Times crossword puzzles, <laughs> which are which are real puzzles. You yes, they are. Yeah, yeah. Find the clue. It's not synonyms like American crosswords. It's no. puzzles. And I knew that Bernstein loved to be challenged and loved these uh, crossword puzzles. So, I whatever recording notes that the Deutsche Grammophon team had for Bernstein, I would give to him. I put post-its in his score with all the notes from recording team reimagined as a London Times crossword puzzle clue. <laughs> and you would see him pause. The orchestra had no clue what was going on, but suddenly Bernstein would just stop and look and break out into laughter and then give the right clue, the uh, right, right note. You know? And uh, you know, Hans Weber just hugged me. He said, thank you, you were the first person to get him into a good mood in a recording session. <laughs> This is, this is one of the, you know, find out what makes certain conductors laugh mm, mm. and make them laugh during, not necessarily during rehearsals, but know how to lighten the mood. Yeah. When, when famous conductor FY is getting in a really, you know, the storm clouds are, you know, just lighten the mood hmm. and be a team player. Yeah. Be a yeah. team player. Be Mr good mood yeah you're not there to create drama you're you're there to release the drama that famous conductor is bringing into the world so be be mr good mood you mentioned you know three uh, being an assistant, being the teacher, which we'll we'll come back to again. I'm going to go to the middle bit, um, your career, your career conducting bit. Um, I mean, I see you, your name. Uh, you mentioned it earlier, working in Bern at the Opera House and and La Monet, where there was a, a famous, you know, your first production there was very very well received. Um, did you or do you still prefer an opera production to a, um, a symphonic concert? Um, how was did you try and split it evenly between the two? And guesting 
did you enjoy guesting? Because not everybody enjoys guest conducting um, that, you know, going in, putting the beat down and not knowing what's going to come back at you and, you know, different orchestra's attitudes. Um, mem- sort of uh, it's, uh, trying to potted history of your conducting career in that short, non-easy question. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, but no, no, no. But, but stick, uh, I, I like, I like the also for any student who might be or young conductor who might be listening which is sort of the yeah. point yes absolutely yeah um, okay so let's let's think i think at the end of the day i i started working with singers and 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 coaching opera to the end of my days i think i'm always going to be a theater yeah. man yeah. i love yeah. the teamwork i love the work from building production from beginning to end um, I do not like the sport of jumping in without a rehearsal, which German opera houses like yeah. to do, or mm-hmm. the biggest, I, that, that's not opera for me. That, that's, 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 I want to scream at the audience, demand your money back, because this is not a well-seasoned theater experience. The people yeah. are not acting, they're just surviving. Mm. And, the, and the orchestra is not melding, they're just basically playing on a sort of autopilot that keeps them safe from any disaster. Yes. And the conductor is doing what conductor Y and then before him, conductor X did, and then what before him, you know, in going back 70 years, that's how yeah. you did that transition. Yeah. That's not opera for me. But building a production from conceptual conversation from the stage director to final performance, that's where my blood really starts boiling mm. positively. Uh, trust me, I adore conducting every symphonic piece I've ever done. So it's not that I am not a symphonic conductor, but at the end of the day, if you force me at gunpoint, choose one or the other, I will definitely always choose the opera. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. Uh, how did I proportion it? The interesting is thing, I have no control about that. I take the jobs that come to me. Yes. Yeah. And so there were periods where I was doing many, when I especially was engaged in opera house, of course I was doing more opera than symphonic. Mm. Then I had a period where I was doing a lot more symphonic and, and the occasional, but always high level production of Teatro Real, uh, the first production, Spanish performance of Cunning Vixen in, at the Teatro Real, mm. um, um, Ex of Bones, uh, La Monet, Apenor, blah, blah, blah. So, the occasional but always high profile, not in not in the provinces. Mm. Uh, and every time I was away too long from the upper pit, I was missing it terribly. And then when I'm doing a long production and I was away from the symphonic repertoire for too long, then I'd miss the symphonic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it, but the career the career decides it for you. You don't decide. Oh, I'm now going to do 50-50. Yeah. Until you get to a certain level. But when you're a young conductor, you, it, it, your career happens you don't make a career your career happens Mm. Um, okay so this is one thing um then the next thing was there are people who take to guest conducting and there are people who take to competitions yes like ducks out of water no um uh, or ducks in water i guess (laughs) that's their their terrain yeah um and there are conductors who need to be a, a, a part of a team that they know and they know the floor below the ground beneath them very solidly i was that person i loathed guest mm. conducting mm. i am not a person that's easy meeting people and dealing with people i have not uh, I've, i don't know mm. i there's something horrifically shy about me um and reserved about me it's all going back to the imposter complex that i had to assume <laughs> um 
I want to meet new people, yeah. but when it actually happens, I sort of get very shy. Mm. This is not conducive to a guest conducting career. Um, I do not like walking into the room and not knowing whether we're going to have a common language to work from, or am I going to be constantly adapting or, or, or the feeling was, you know, sort of a fight or flight feeling um, sometimes. Yes. Um, not mentioning any orchestra specifically, but gigs that went badly, there was a fight or flight feeling. It was a, it's not going the way I want. Uh, I don't feel any connection to this orchestra. Mm. They want something out of me that I do not want to give them. And, um, and how do I get to the end of this concert experience without being horrific? No, mm. I have some joy in the profession. If that happens too much, you can burn out. And I did have two moments of burnout. I mean, mm. just, I just did not want to get in a plane anymore. One of them led to the conducting job in Vienna, the teaching job. I said, well, let me try this. The mm. irony is I still live privately in Switzerland. So I commute to Vienna every week. Hmm. I'm actually in a plane more often than I was when I was guest conducting, but <laughs> I'm going to a home base. I'm going yeah. to a place that I know. I'm going to a team that I know and trust and love. Um, um, and so it, it's exhausting, but doesn't rattle me. Hmm. But, the, but you know, you go to a new city, especially uh, talking, for instance, um, Trondheim, hmm. which is one of my first major Norwegian games. I adore to this day that that orchestra. So you get to a new country, new language. You don't know the culture. You don't know the restaurants. You don't know the city. The city is very often closed down when you get there mm. late at night and you're desperate for food and you realize your best friend is McDonald's because you know on your very first night, you know what's on the menu and know how to work. <laughs> um, and yeah, been there, done that. <laughs> yeah, 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 no, no, no. This is part of the, yeah. speaking of the guest conductor life, I don't know a single male conductor. You think they're all cool and they're driving their Porsches and they're flying their planes and things like that. I don't know a single male conductor that's not an expert in um, sewing on buttons and uh, knowing exactly all the tricks of how to iron um, wool clothing like a, a tux or a tuxedo or a tails or now everyone's wearing narrow jackets, but yeah. there are tricks of how to iron that. No one I know. Yeah. doesn't know exactly how to pick up an iron and do all the tricks. So Simon, I've seen ironing his books. So Daniel, I've seen the Harding, I've yeah. seen ironing his books. I, I'm an expert in sewing on buttons, you know? The, the things you don't think that the major maestros know how to do. It's true. That is life and death on the road. Mm. How to survive. Knowing yeah. what, uh, I, one of your questions uh, is going to come up, I know at the end. Um, what, what do you have to have in your baggage? Mm. to survive you know and then never pack your music in your luggage um, make sure you have in your hand baggage exactly enough clothes to get you through the first day of rehearsal because probably especially if you're flying to amsterdam your luggage is not going to wind up with you yeah yeah um, that's true. dealing with dealing with that stress mm. and knowing and learning uh, I, another advice i give my students is when you get your first agency never forget to say thank you a lot <laughs> Yeah, yeah, because they are working their tail off for no hope of any financial reward for the first maybe five years. Mm. Just say thank you. Don't stress them. Don't be dramatic at them. Don't don't. I, I, my very first agency in Oslo, I didn't know that trick. Mm. 
and I left on bad terms with them. And I now look back and I said, they were really, I was not fair to them. They were really trying very hard. And I, if I just said, thank you mm. for what you're doing, maybe this doesn't work for me, but thank you. Um, I might have left on better terms. So in the same way, I wish someone had talking about England. Um, I came to England from one of my very first really professional solo jobs at the CBSO. And people, people had not warned me about British humor <laughs> and the way as we started out, you know, when you say, how are you doing? You're not expecting an actual answer. <laughs> oh, um, <no. laughs> and, um, and, you know, you'll, you know, to hear the words of, you know, that was just really lovely, which probably in England means, oh my word, we've never experienced anything that terrific. <laughs> um, um, uh, you know, some, they had warned me about that and they hadn't, Let's say, as an American, the highest compliment you can give an orchestra of music professional in America is tell them what you want, exactly what you want, in most efficient terms. Thank you very much. Go. Mm. No, no time wasted. Please thank you occasionally, but already that's two seconds that could be being played. Yes. Yeah. Tell you what you want. Boom. Be very direct. That's the highest compliment in America. And someone should have told me, if you would just say, I'm so sorry, but could I bother you too? <laughs> and then go into the American there. Yeah. I or, might have gotten on yeah. with British history. Or, yeah. or would you mind sorry. if I... Or, yeah, like, yeah, I'm sorry to be a bore. But, <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, you know, the sort of slightly self-deprecating and and use the word we as opposed to I because British orchestras there's a sense of identity UK orchestras excuse me mm. um, 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 there's a sort of self identity within the orchestra and you are very much the guest in the room. Mm. Um, I also tell my students talking about guest conducting treat guest conducting gigs as if you're coming to a dinner party at a great house. Your job is to bring a couple of really good bottles of wine and some fabulous conversation. Your job is not to rearrange the furniture in the house. Mm, absolutely. Yeah, that's a brilliant. Yeah, and that's again where I burned myself because I tended to be feel when I felt uncomfortable, I turned into a control freak, mm, mm. which is not necessarily the best way to deal with some orchestras. No, no. Um, and, um, and so to round this back, it's a, I never felt comfortable as a guest conductor. I was always looking for home base. I was always looking for a team that I could feel a part of a family with. Um, and if I was, if I didn't have that for too long, and I had the constant not knowing what to expect of feeling, I tended to burn out mm. and get very stressed by the constant travel, the feeling of in order to earn money, I have to get on the plane. Mm. Mm. I have two small. So, and so uh, one of my solutions was just to step back from the constant travel as a singular, singular conductor, individual conductor and tap into something I got from my very first mentors, Tilson Thomas and Bernstein, not all the great repertoire I learned from them or all the tricks of the trade, but tap into that bit of both of those two people who communicated what they were doing to other people. Mm. Neither of them could study a score alone. They always needed someone at their side to have a conversation with about the score as they were studying. To study a score was to have a dialogue. Mm. To study a score was to share 
thoughts. And so they could not do it in a vacuum. They mm. had to have someone. To, so, so that became my role in certain instances within, within TT. And over the course of five years, increasingly to the point almost 24-7 with Bernstein, of the greatest experiences were not on the concert trail, not um, having five hours to change the Vienna Philharmonic Boeings and the Beethoven Fifth Piano Concerto literally overnight and have them in the, in the orchestra library on the stands for the next morning's recording session. And Bernstein doesn't give me his score until two in the morning and I have to be at nine o'clock in the morning at the library. You know, not that part of Bernstein. No. It was the Bernstein sitting at his study in, at his country home in Connecticut, learning the scores for the next season. And he would tell me, I'm looking at La Mer tomorrow. Mm. Come up to Connecticut, sit by me. You tell me everything you know about La Mer, and then I will tell you, Bernstein, I will, Bernstein, I will tell yeah. you, Mark Stringer, everything I know about La Mer. In other words, I was not allowed into the room until I had something to offer Bernstein. Yeah. He wouldn't open his mouth with me until I put something on the table for him to look at. <laughs> and then once that offering had been made, then it was a dialogue, yeah. a Socratic dialogue. Why do you think about this? Why do you think about that? Um, what do you think about the Toscany reorchestrations? Think a dialogue. And by doing that, Bernstein was marking the score and thinking about it on himself. Yeah. Thoughts way higher than anything I had offered him. But my conversation was the motor for him to do, do his study. So, I, so I, I tapped into that bit of those mm. two giants of the teacher yeah. person, the teacher in MTT. And I suddenly found my Zen place mm. where I learned, I come to this podcast just having conduct, uh, taught for three hours Shostakovich and I. Mm for the fourth time in two weeks <laughs> you know and i started blessing thinking i am completely out of anything new to say but it was also my most advanced class today mm. so they again by this point after four or five years with me they know they are not in the they must offer me something before i, I do the same thing yeah they have to offer me something before i start the dialogue mm. But my word, the things they were offering up, the ideas, the thoughts, so that, that we got onto this really long discussion about Akhmatova and the gulags and Solzhenitsyn, and then how do we translate that into Milosevic in the 90s and, and Donald Trump um, in Guantanamo <laughs> Bay in, in America and the far right extremism today. And so, exactly the kind of conversation that is a 20 year old or 24 year old around Bernstein well into the night would just, I would, I would go out into the early morning of New York just buzzed with, oh my word, I just had a glimpse of something I had no idea I didn't know. Yeah. And, and sort of having that conversation and by the end of it, I was think, realizing I had come to a, an understanding of a certain bit of the piece that I never imagined before thanks to those students. Mm, mm. Um, and so I'm coming to this podcast on a real intellectual high, you can tell because <laughs> I'm just gabbing, but, um, <laughs> because of what the students brought there. So I found my Zen place as a teacher. I, where that's, even that's though I'm traveling even more than before, I'm calmer. 
than I yeah. used to be. And I'm happier than I used to be. And I can look at my students and say, oh, that's what I came off as. You know, when someone starts getting arrogant or something gets in pushy or someone says, they go, oh, that's how I look. I, I seemed when I was doing that at the same age. Oh, how embarrassing. I got mm -hmm. to tell this person to stop doing this or that. Yeah. It's, it sounds like a class I would thoroughly enjoy um, because I love, you know. Well, except I know that you don't play piano. I've heard your, I've heard several of your podcasts, but I no. remember your comment to George Jackson, who was a student of mine. Yeah. And and um, there, there's a slight difference of agreement. I know that it, in, in, in theory, I know it's completely possible that Kusevitsky was a great conductor and played only contrabass and barely read music and certainly didn't play <laughs> any piano. And yet he was a world-class conductor. I know that theoretically exists. Um, if someone studies with me, I need to have a basis piano technique so that they can at least score read and imagine multiple lines at the same time. Mm -hmm. And that's what pianists can bring to the room is they have a inbuilt um, understanding of how to make four or five or 30 voices work at the same time in their fingers. Mm -hmm. Uh, which and also pianists tend to be better at coming up with original conceptions of big structure pieces like the Hammerklavier or the late Beethoven sonatas or the Brahms of his five sonata. You know, we deal with pianists deal with the big structure pieces more readily. Maybe I guess the next group would be the violinists who have the um, Beethoven sonatas and the Brahms sonatas to deal with. But in terms of as a violinist, making a concept of the Kreutzer Sonata or the Spring Sonata that really works in an arch and an architecture. Where I find most orchestral players have a problem who come out of the orchestra and have been given interpretations on the silver platter to them. They tend to, they all want to do their own thing, but they tend to be a little bit Jackson Pollocky in their sense of architecture and how to make a piece work from beginning to end with one single arch. Uh, because they've not had to come up with a structure on their own. That's uh, and so I I I I I, um, I work most easily with conductors who are who have a basis piano technique. Mm. Well, I mean, I most condu most conductors need to have a professional ability on one on one instrument, and then a working knowledge of at least one of every type of instrument. Mm. A brass instrument, a woodwind instrument, a string instrument, or a piano instrument, or a keyboard instrument—a working knowledge, so that mm. you know what it feels like to have the violin buzzing against your. I could not stand playing the violin because the sound was way too close to my ear. So I wound up being a contrabass player <laughs> and a trumpet player. Still mm. remember how my lips hurt after buzzing for way too long in one day. You know, so I know how that feeling is, and I know how to breathe, breathe and I know how to sing. Mm. which is the most important thing that, uh, that yes. uh, as a conductor, to learn how to sing, learn how to use your diaphragm, learn how to breathe, how to support your voice, how to project your voice, where, and then you can work with singers on their level. Mm. Mm. Uh, so, uh, so you, you I remember, um, defending the rights of non-pianists to become conductor. Long may they live, there are lots <laughs> of them, but a basic you know, C major, da, dee, da, bum, ba, da, bum, piano sonata level 
really helps. I'm sure it. I'm sure it does. Um, I will argue uh, slightly backwards and so, or back against you and say that you know, if I sit down at a score, I'm going to look at the architecture properly from start to finish. Uh, I have also, you know, played a, had to go at a few instruments and also chatted to my colleagues. The the piano thing is indefensible. I never took it up. I never learned it. And when I was uh, 14, I wanted to be an orchestra violinist, period. But, you know, as yeah. you said, we are we are products of our lives. And at some yeah. point in my mid-20s, I wanted to change and become a conductor, especially by the time of the age of 35. Um, and, you know, therefore... Were you, were you have an advantage over young pianist Mark Stringer and during Juilliard mm. as an orchestral player? Any orchestral player has this advantage. First of all, you're going to be much more sensitive to intonation than I am. Mm. Pianists tend pianists can pianists can do wonderful intonation, but they tend to be less sensitive about where beats are in the in the waves and where the overtones are than violinists yeah. um, and oboists, string players. Let's say um, um, I, 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 I will I will say a violinist and cellist tend to be even more sensitive than violist and bassist. Okay, <laughs> please bring out the cries of protest. Um, um, <laughs> I, I welcome them, um, but the and you know how to work in a team, mm. and you listen to other people actively mm. better than many pianists do. And me, by what I mean, active listening is what like a first violinist in a string quartet. The first violinist is sort of leading and guiding the string quartet through Opus One Thirty Two or whatever, mm. but. It is a weird sense of improvisation in that you're just listening like mad and listening to this impulse from the cellist and listening to that impulse for trying, let's see where it goes in this way. Um, orchestral players tend to do that better than pianists mm. who tend to be, no man is an island un, uh, unto himself. Yeah, no, nice. it tends to be the island unto him, the, the anti-John Dunn. <laughs> um, and so that's where you have, and you have more sensitivity just on a very basic musical level. Um, and I've had lots of lots of conversations with various string players in various countries and various theories. If you just take a simple triad, major triad, how loud should the fifth be and how loud should the third be? Should the third be louder than the fifth or should the third be softer than the fifth? And in Vienna, they tend to want the third to disappear into the chord. <laughs> um, and, but I've had uh, also in America people who argue exactly the opposite. I just love that dialogue, you know, that yeah. nerd dialogue. Um, orchestral musicians tend to be better than that. I've noticed brass players or wind players tend to hear every wrong intonation in the wind section and be totally deaf to the strings. <laughs> and string players can tune the microtones till you start screaming with the string section, but be utterly oblivious whether the piccolo is higher or lower than the bass clarinet. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, and so part of my job is to rag on all my students and say you, to be the, um, the complete conductor, you have to be able to do both of those worlds quickly. Hmm. Hmm. Well, and I no have- excuse, No excuse for being a pianist. Yeah. <laughs> I have one final question, which if you've listened to a few episodes, which it sounds like you have, um, you'll know that I ask or have asked every conductor, 
And I wonder whether you teach this to your students in Vienna. Um, and it's about score study, but also it's really about score marking. When you come to learn a score, I'm assuming you sit at the piano. Um, do you start with the bigger overall picture and work inwards? Do you start at the beginning and work your way through? And are you a scribbler? Are you a red, blue and black pencil person? And when you teach, do you say to them, uh, oh, you're holding, uh, I know exactly oh, which maker does, pencil yeah. it is. <laughs> um, and when that's the answer to the question of what do I have to think about <laughs> on my travels? Yeah, red uh, right. Red and blue pencil. Uh, and okay. when you come to teach this, do you prescribe something or do you let them find their own way? Because I think the answer has come over you know ninety odd episodes now, where everybody does it their own way. But how do you do it, and how do you teach it? I uh, love your questions, uh, and and I hope you have some time. I have. To, you're you're going to have to edit this down, but this will take time. <laughs> um, okay. You, you started off at how do I study score and you, you assumed that I started at the piano. Mm. Not necessarily. Okay. Not necessarily. Very often, if you're on the road, you don't have a piano. No, that's true. That's, that's the thing. You don't, have, you don't always have access to a piano. It's, for me, it's a luxury mm. if, I have, if I have the ability to learn the score at the piano. Um, if it's an opera, I start with the text alone. Mm. I learn the text like an actor by memory. Mm. Not, no musical content. As an actor, by memory, I can cite from beginning to end, Parsifal or whatever it is, in the moment that I'm doing. I, yeah. Two days later, I can't do it, but in mm. the moment, I can start from beginning when recite the text by memory. As an actor, feeling the words, feeling the rhythm of the words. Then I go. That's where I, I learn the score at the piano. Is I coach it to myself as a singer. Mm. Um. If it's a symphonic score or a non-operatic score, I have a good enough ear that I don't need the piano to learn the score. I do score read well enough that I can score read uh, fluently. So where the piano is useful for me is just experimenting with phrasing, experimenting with balances, experimenting with this and that. Mm. Um, not necessarily to learn the piece. Um, yes, I will listen to every available recording. First of all, when I first get the gig, recordings are, are YouTube is a great thing, right? Mm. Uh, the day that an agent or an intendant will be asking you, we want to do this piece there, what do you think about that? Well, I immediately get a working knowledge of the piece as quickly as I can so I know where the problems are, what to expect in rehearsals, mm. not really even having a score for it, but just have a clue of, oh, this piece is going to be difficult for this reason or not. Mm, mm. Um, instantly and then then I'm on my own and then I'll come back once I have it in my ear and my body and my brain then I'll come back and listen to every available recording from the dawn of Edison cylinders mm. um, uh, to find out what works to, I'm a big magpie I will mm. steal any good idea <laughs> how, how much do I mark up a score um, I learned a certain scores marking technique from Bernstein. I found, again, going circling back to the assistant conducting thing, one of the things I found very useful with Bernstein was to mark my score exactly the way he marked his score so that I had a working copy in my score of what he had in his score. Yeah. Um, and it just became just much more efficient if instead of using my colors, I used his colors. And that's yeah. where I discovered the holy red and blue pencil. Hmm. Um, and the older I get, the less I mark. Mm. Um, um, very often, if, if it's been away from me for five or six or even 10 years, 
I will have, I will want a new fresh score and learn it from scratch with no markings. Mm -hmm. The older I get, the less I mark, actually, the worse my eyes get, the more, I, the bigger the scores and the more I actually want to see the notes I'm conducting. I'm, I know the scores by memory, but I have a score in front of me because it never impresses me to see someone conducting by memory, nor do I think <laughs> it impresses anyone in the orchestra if I'm conducting by memory. It's not impressing anyone, so why, why take the risk of making a mistake? I've, I've always called um, it a parlor trick, personally, when I, from my playing it, it, days. You know, yeah, yeah. You know, people say, oh, I feel so much freer not having to stand in front of me. You know, I might hit the standard. If I say, well, if you're hitting the standard, you're conducting too well. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's but, true. Uh, being a smart teacher, a smart ass teacher. Um, <laughs> okay, so back to score study. One of the big things I teach in Vienna is not only technique and not only rehearsal psychology and all the things I've learned from all my great mentors. Yeah. I have a score study method that I teach. It's a Socratic method. It's um, about marking scores I don't get involved with. I, right. Everyone has their own system. I don't get involved. Yeah. I also don't insist that my study, my students study the way I study because everyone has their way into it. And I respect that. I want at the end of the day, at the end of the process, we all know the score like we had composed it ourselves. I yes. tell my students, you are no longer, whatever your name is, you're not that person anymore. You are Ludwig van Beethoven on the podium. That's your composition. Those are your ideas and you are composing it on the spot. Mm. You are taking responsibility for every idea you have. Um, so my goal is to get whatever person to that part. I will say, this is how I do it. If you can deal with this, fine. Mm. If you can't do with it, I, I expect the same result, but the means, that's your business. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, my means is I ask, and I learned this from Tilson Thomas, credit where credit is due. I've developed it, my own system, but it, I got this from Tilson Thomas. The four holy questions. What is there? Why is it there? What makes it special? How does it work? Mm, brilliant. Um, what is there is you're looking at it as an analysis. You're looking, that's where you do the harmonic class. You, you, is it horn and F? Is it horn and C? Is it what's temple? Black and white, what is on the page? Because the ear, if it's a piece that we know from other performances or know for a long time, the ear can trick the eye into seeing what the ear wants to hear. Mm, very true. And therefore, the first question is to turn off the ear and just look at the score. What is there on the page? Black and white. No context, just black and white. Analysis, harmonic analysis, instrumentation, ten, all these things. Question number two, you're looking at it like a composer. Why is it there? Why does Brahms go to this chord and not that chord? Why does Strauss, Johann Strauss always use trumpets in F and not trumpets in B flat? Mm. Why this? Why that? Uh, you're, this is where you take apart the Swiss watch and then rebuild the Swiss watch. Mm. Mm. Another mm. metaphor I often use. Um, and this is where you make every decision your own. Mm. You know why Bach goes in this direction and not in that direction. Um, and one of, the, one of the tricks that I like to do at home and then that I'll occasionally um, uh, uh, ask the students, okay, behind every great genius composer that we know now how many hundreds of years later, there is always the sort of mid-level 
Aparochnik composer. <laughs> so Mozart had his Salieri. Yes. Horrifically underestimated, but let's say Mozart had his Salieri, Bach had his Albert, uh, had his Matheson, and um, Shostakovich had Kandikov, and Brahms had Joachim Raff. Everyone has their mid-level no-name. So what would Salieri do in the next measure? Mm. Now let's look at what Mozart did, or let's look at what Haydn did. Let's compare Haydn to Mozart. What makes Haydn Haydn not Mozart? Mm. What makes Schubert Schubert and not Beethoven? Next question, what makes it special? Mm -hmm. You're looking at it as a historian. This is where you do all the deep dive intellectual work. You put it in its historical context. You put it in, in its his, uh, societal context. Uh, you, you ask the question, okay, why is it a masterpiece? Mm -hmm. What makes it a masterpiece? Why do I have to every few years deal with Brahms four or Mozart G minor symphony. The other piece I taught this morning was the Haydn 102 um, B flat major symphony. If I don't deal with that particular symphony about once every year, mm. I miss it terribly. Mm -hmm. So why, what is it about that symphony that I don't get from the brother of Haydn mm. or the, or Hummel, the pupil of Mozart, or Reese, the pupil of Beethoven. Why do I not miss anything by Reese? But if I don't, every once in a while, think about, okay, what makes the appassionata tick? Mm. Then I feel very, or I work a symphony, I feel very, very lessened as a human being. Okay, so that's the, your historian. Finally, once I've dealt with it as a historian, as an analysis, as a composer, as uh, all these other hats, only then do I start thinking of like a conductor. Mm. Now, heaven help me, if I haven't, if I go in front of the CBSO and I haven't figured out whether I'm going to be in four two and how I do this transition and how do I do tune the scores, you know, the nuts and bolts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But my problem is so many conductors start there mm. at the end of what my process is and think the other questions are too much work. Mm, mm. I don't think, I, I, I just insist there aren't, if you want to be world-class, the concept of taking shortcuts mm. doesn't exist. Mm. It's not in my dictionary. Now, realistically, if I get 12 hours to learn Ed Expecto Resurrectionum of Messiaen, I'm still gonna be asking the questions. I'm just gonna be asking them at the speed of light. Yes. Going on gut instincts, the older I get, the more I trust my gut. I think all of these questions, tend again to come from the imposter complex. Well, I have to defend my rights to be here. So I'm going to over-prepare like mad. Mm, the older yeah. I get, the more I trust my gut. Mm. You know, I'm good enough. I, I, it's not that I don't have to do the homework. I want to do the homework because I like doing it, but it, I'm not going to be a better musician having done it. However, um, um, if I have 12 hours to do an expecto, of course, my one and only job is to organize the score, hello, red and blue pencil, <laughs> organize the score in such a way that I could basically look at it and see the blocks of it and sight read it in front of the orchestra without yes. making a mistake. Yeah. This is my first, first 12 hours at something as horrifically complex as, you know, the shaker loops or, or whatever, you know. Yeah. Um, however, I'm also being able to do it at Expecto because I now have a backlog of experience in Stravinsky and, um, and, and other pieces of Messiaen 
and Mio, mm. and I know the language. I have a backlog of experiences to sort of on the fly answer question two and three. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I've got it's not that I'm shrinking it. And I always say, if I have 12 hours to learn the piece, it takes me 12 hours. If I have 12 years to learn the piece, it takes me 12 years. Mm. The end result in the concert is not going to be wide apart from one another. Mm. So what you're but saying is you, you can you can change the order of the question the, the order of the questions. Oh, the um, que oh yeah, the, no, definitely. It's a constant circle, and yeah. I'm constantly asking the questions. Yeah. Every yeah. single time I look at the piece. That's one of the reasons I like getting new scores. I'm on my something like my fifth score of the fourth of the Brahms four, and yeah. certainly my probably eighth score of something like um, Brahms one or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, you know, these pieces are always coming back to me. I just like being confronted with the new print. Yeah, yeah. I love getting the newest critical edition, not because it's the newest one is always the best one. It just gives me um, a different visual feel for the piece. So I'm not working off of photographic memory, but yeah, yeah. And and every once in a while, the new the new print. Oh, I never noticed that there was a staccato there. I never mm -hmm. noticed that this was a diminuendo or something like that. So that in a long. Um, big mama of a nutshell is <laughs> the way I teach how to score study. Huh. And I say this, I'm going to be asking my teaching, I'm going to be asking you these questions. So you're going to have to deal with it on some form or not or not. Yeah. But if that doesn't work for you, you find your own way. But don't take shortcuts. I will yeah. call you out if I sense that you're just dealing on the surface and you're just imitating some record. Yeah. I will call you out on it. Absolutely. I will, I will make it very embarrassing for you. If you, if, you, if I don't, if I sense you taking shortcuts, then I will call you up. But what your path to Rome is, we're all going to arrive in Rome, but there are many roads to Rome. Another topic we discussed was how and why he had helped Daniel Harding with his conducting in the middle of Daniel's career. You may remember way back in episode 11 that Daniel openly discussed this and it seems that many conductors have asked Mark to do a Daniel for them. I've turned that 17-minute discussion into a Patreon-exclusive bonus mini-episode. There is a link in the show notes below that will take you to my Patreon page, and there you will find six different levels of subscription, starting from as little as £5 a month. Now, the all-important 10 questions with my guest, Mark Stringer. Mark, it's that moment of the podcast, 90 or so episodes in, I'm still asking these same 10 questions, and you will be no different. And I start with what sound or noise do you love, and what sound or noise do you hate? So the sort of noise that I love are children laughing. Yeah. <laughs> and this is personal. Where I live in Switzerland, we're directly across the street from a kindergarten. We live in a very, as Germans say, multicultural, a very intercultural neighborhood. So this is a playground where Tamilian, what's the word? Uh, Tamils, um, uh, forgive me in English if that's the wrong word. Um, Tamil, um, Tamil is um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sri Lankan. Okay, yeah. yeah, exactly. Sri Lankan, um, Turkish, Muslim, Christian, Jewish. They're all there. They're all laughing on the playground. They're right. all not seeing any difference between them. They're just having fun together. Racism is a learned quality and not an inborn quality. And this is this is the this is the example of it. You go to a kindergarten, the kids are playing very happily. They don't know that they're supposed to be mistrusting 
um, the, the the people who don't look like them. Yeah. And yeah. and to hear that, especially you know on a summer day, um, and I'll be studying at my desk, and suddenly when playtime comes at the kindergarten, so I hear this roar of children laughing. <laughs> it just, no matter how gray the day might be, it just brings sunshine into my life. Yeah, yeah. The sound of hate, um, uh, basically big city noise. Mm. You know, the street cars honking, jackhammers drilling, loud noise. I, so city, city, New, I could never live in New York ever again. It's just, just too aggressively loud for me. If you had 24 hours free, what would you spend it doing? Now, the embarrassing and truthful answer is <laughs> I, the one quality I share with Carlos Claver is I'm very happy just being a tomato in a garden doing absolutely nothing. Um, um, and so that's the embarrassing thing. I would love to say that I'm going to spend my day reading Tolstoy and, and <laughs> all of Proust in, in 24 hours. Not going to happen. If I have a day where I have nothing planned, if the weather permits, I will spend a lot of that day out in the garden. Mm -hmm. I am a passionate gardener. We're going to come back. I think that question comes up later, right? Um, <laughs> I'm a passionate gardener. Um, I will definitely be playing with my cat. Mm -hmm. I'm a cat fanatic. Um, and one of the, this comes back to doing nothing, but there's something very Buddhist about it. I just love being really, really quiet mm. i don't have to be even reading because that's noise in my head you know yes. I'm reading just being quiet other people will call it vegetating other people will call it zoning out i'm calling it just i can't do it for many or very, very long but i yeah. just love going going to a very still part of my soul so there will be uh, it's not meditation really it's, it's just going quiet mm. um and then there is endless amount of rabbit holes on YouTube. I'm embarrassing. I'm, I'm, you know, I, oh, come on, I've Mark, we've all up, been there. I've given up <laughs> pretending that I'm a deep intellectual. And you know, I'm, uh, I've stopped being embarrassed because I cannot dis um, um, discuss arcane Japanese uh, poetry with Simon Raptor. I've just given up <laughs> being embarrassed by that. Uh, and when since Simon says, well, any, uh, he's actually very embarrassed by this um, statement. He admits saying it, but he's embarrassed by it. But uh, <laughs> I will repeat, you know, any, con any conductor who has not read Dr. Faustus is not worthy of the name conductor. And so, well, I know Daniel Harkin's <laughs> specific. I've tried many times in many languages to read Dr. Faustus. I find it exceptionally boring. I guess I'm not a conductor. <laughs> um, but so um, I've given up trying to impress people that I'm uh, um, intellectual. I do love reading, but um, I'm not necessarily out to read the complete works of um, Dostoevsky anymore. Can you name your favorite conductor or conductors of yesteryear? Okay, yesteryear would be, uh, they tend to be fair, you're, you'll notice um, uh, fairly Germanic. Um, uh, the conductor that not many people know of the name of anymore, but is vastly important in German culture is Fritz Steinbach. Well, I don't um, know this name. Brahms's favorite conductor. Oh. Um, um, enormously influential until um, uh, uh, he basically put Brahms's orchestral music on the map. Wow. And people forget that until maybe 1920, 
Brahms was considered an outlier and an avant-gardist and, uh, and, and was not that well-known by orchestras. And Fritz Steinbach um, conducted for Brahms many times, was the leader of the Meinigen Hofkapelle, and he was the great proselytizer for Brahms after Brahms died. Cycles and first Brahms cycles in London, first Brahms cycles in Munich, uh, in, in Berlin. Mm. Uh, so, uh, and very influential, huge supporter of Gustav Mahler, the first performance of Mahler eight outs after Mahler's own performance, um, one of the first performances of Mahler five, um, Mahler two, so in, in, in Cologne, uh, vastly important dramatic conductor who unfortunately had a Me Too experience in, at the Cologne Conservatory, dilly-dallying with a female student and so shockingly from 1914 was fired from the job and erased from the planet um, yeah. uh, for that and, and had a heart attack shortly. So Steinbach fascinates me. Massive Fort Fengler fan, mm -hmm. fanatic. Massive Leopold Stokowski, fanatic about what he could do. He and Karia. Yeah. of what they could do in terms of getting colors out of an orchestra. Yeah, yeah. Um, and to, so I mentioned Karyan. Of, of the great ones of yesterday, bizarrely not Bernstein, it's Karyan that I miss the most, of the ultimate commander of the art of conducting. Mm. Um, and more recently, well, I will have to now add, since, since a couple of weeks ago, I have to add another name to the list, but um, 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 Harnikor. Yeah. Whom I knew personally, desperately miss him on the scene. The only one after Karian and Bernstein to have that kind of mega Frank Sinatra charisma on the stage. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Sir Simon is the first one to admit the same thing. Yeah. Um, he's the only one who could, just by walking onto the stage, the audience would go into a frenzy. Mm. Uh, so I desperately miss Harmon Kaur. And of course, now we have to talk about yesteryear Sir Bernard. We do, yes, yeah. You have to. We, we do. When, when I prepared this statement, he was still alive, and and so since then, I just suddenly, oh, if I don't mention Sir Bernard, I'm not worthy of my my title of conductor. Mm -hmm. Brilliant, brilliant oh, choice. Someone in the simplest way to the end, what physical he can had in his nineties. The last one of the last London Symphony performances, I think, if not the last, but London Symphony performance. There's a film of him, uh, Mozart E flat major concerto with Till Feldner. And just watching him conduct the most simple, beautiful three-pounder without the slightest old man quiver to his stick, yeah. but like a old, you know, late Dolly painting, reduced to the bare essentials of what's necessary. But boy, yeah. you, know, you can say about the same thing about Blomstedt, but Blomstedt is the youngest old man I've ever met. Well, maybe Blomstedt is your next question. Yeah, or maybe Blomstedt is one of the answers to question five. So exactly. that would be your yeah, favorite character. Well, <laughs> the obvious answers, of course, um, um, one of the reasons I enjoyed working with Daniel Harding and studying and working with and for Sir Sammy Rattle, so I'm just mass, I'm their biggest, apart from their own parents, I'm their biggest fans. Mm, yeah. um, so I have to mention those two specifically. Um, and we have mentioned Blomstedt. Yes. Of female conductors, this is a whole other topic. I think Natalie Stutzman is the real thing. I yes. mean, she is as brilliant technically, 
in terms of command of an orchestra, in terms of sheer conducting technique, she is so much the real thing. Mm. Um, there's a new conductor that, and I, I'm going to mangle his name, Joystin. I discovered him through Joystin Donato and Il Pomodoro, but there's a young Russian conductor, Maxim, please help me with the name, Emelianichev. I don't know how to pronounce his name, but by God, is he interesting. Yeah, he conducted at the proms this year, and I think he did yeah, yeah. Oh, 39, 40, 41, I think, did he? Yes, I think just, just, yeah. uh, 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 yeah. again, I, 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 I have actually met him, but it was, um, I didn't know I was meeting him. It was sort of like wrong context, wrong city, not, and yeah. I didn't, until he had passed me, I realized who he was. He was just, he, he'd come to a graduation concert of my students because he knew one of the students conducting. Um, and he came up to me and said the nicest things to me. And that's another thing. And I was nodding and saying, oh, thank you so much. And pretending that I knew who was talking to me. And if I, and then like 10 minutes, like, oh, my word, that yeah. was Maxine. Yeah. Oh, I had so many questions for him, but wrong, wrong context, wrong time. Didn't know I was meeting him. I hope I will meet him again and, and know, you know, yeah. not blank out. And uh, he's just sensationally. Uh, there's a just recently a, a video of him conducting Theodora Handel's Theodora with Joyce Gennaro, and I'm just looking and said, "He's the music. I don't see the conductor. He's the music." Yeah, and yeah. so, um, and it's, I think that's enough for right now. Um, Tielemann and Wagner, but yeah. um, but pretty much reduced to that. What is the hardest work you've ever conducted? Okay, I, I've listed four. Two of them are technical and two of them are musical. Um, right. um, uh, Magnus Lindbergh Arena 2, it's a competition piece that he wrote for, I, I think, the panel or competition. Don't quote me on that. Um, it's, it's, it's just 10 minutes of sheer terror of the fastest multimeter time beating. And <laughs> this is, by the way, speaking there, this is where I, I learned a trick about I, something about myself. Sir Simon had always told me as a student at Tanglewood, the one thing an orchestra will never forgive you for is miscounting. Mm. Because they look bad. Yes. They sound bad because you miscount. That's the one mistake, even Sir Simon said with the CBSO. When he, the one or two times in the 20 years he miscounted, the orchestra took a long time before they forgave him for it. Okay, so I tell my students about this. Where I, it was Arena 2 where I figured out, I make the mistake when I start analyzing what I've heard and start thinking backwards and past tense of what I want to correct, correct. That's where I make the mistake in terms of beating. I kept, I, cause I asked, why was the concert actually really easy for me, but the rehearsals were held? Oh, because I was thinking in the past tense opposed to the future tense. It's the 110 so meter hurdler. Find a safe place, you know, take, take a note, build up your RAM capacity, find a safe place to stop and you won't miscount. Mm. But don't think backwards, just keep thinking. So the arena two taught me that. I must say the hardest opera I've ever conducted would be Lulu. Yes. Um, with Ligeti's Grand Macabre being a really close second. Yeah. Um, now in terms of musical, you're gonna be shocked because this, for so many pieces, this is the easiest piece in the world. I've never, ever conducted a good performance of the afternoon of a fall. <laughs> I just, so find the, I just find the balance of give and take, classical structure opposed to romantic, um, uh, you know, diaphanous, the, the, uh, the tiny 
adjustments of the steering wheel as you're driving down the highway. You know, it's not big, huge jerks yeah. of the steering wheel. The tiny microscopic adjustments of the steering wheel in that piece, I have yet to come out of a performance where I think, that was that was not bad. That <laughs> hasn't happened yet. I'm just, if I cared more, yes, I would be embarrassed by it. But now I'm just, I'm too old. And I said, okay, that's a piece that other people do better than I do. <laughs> and as sure intellectually, I will always say Beethoven 9 remains the toughest climb uphill to Mount Everest. Mm. I will always be deeply humbled by any attempt that I've ever made at that piece. I'm getting better at it, <laughs> but um, but making every making the slow movement work as an arch, making the slow movement work within the bigger arch, making the huge double variation in the last moment work. I love Simon's comment that the piece starts big and gets smaller as mm. it goes along. Oddly enough, the biggest the biggest movement in terms of people on stage is actually just basically the, the magic flute on steroids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. First, it is titanic. Yeah. So I'm finding my way into it. You know, I've had a couple of goes at it um, and I'm very humbled by it. And so that's musically the hardest piece. When traveling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? Okay. Um, I would definitely say, um, um, well, to, to not cheat on your answer, I'll say books, but now, of course, it's my Kindle. Yeah. Um, I, mean, I have to have reading material. If I don't have reading material, I can go to my quiet, still place on a plane. Yeah, yeah, indeed. I have to have something to distract me from the fear of this thing is lifting me up into the air and it could explode in any minute. You know? <laughs> so I have to have my book to distract myself. Number eight. What is the one thing you would change about being a conductor? Already talked about it, the traveling bit of it. Yeah, yeah. The current profession, which I am now too old to really understand, the social media aspect of it, the, the requirement uh, of having a social media presence, I think, <laughs> dreadfully. I keep saying, Karyon didn't have Twitter. <laughs> he did wind up being a really bad conductor, and, and he could sell himself. Mm. I, th I think a lot of it's just distraction, uh, but you know, so social media, traveling. In terms of the other more metaphysical thing, the and we've talked about it before with my shyness and meeting people, the adversarial um, relationship between orchestra players and conductors. Oh God, yes. I'm in a strange city. I don't know anyone. I'm not begging for mercy. <laughs> but, and I'm not being, I'm begging for you to forgive me being a stupid conductor. However, the, the thought that you're not allowed to talk to the conductor, mm -hmm. or the conductor is not allowed to socialize on any level with the players, I find just desperately sick. Mm. The one orchestra where the orchestra went out of its way to make sure that I was around people in Hag Company was in really North Sweden, Umeå. Hmm. And it was in the middle of winter in the, in the, you know, the white nights or you know, the black nights, you know, where the sun doesn't come up. Yeah. And it was snowing. And they knew that they were a tiny city that's not basically on anyone's radar. Really good orchestra, tremendously good orchestra. But, but what I loved about them is they went out of the way to invite me to dinner. 
they went out of the way to take me home to their family and have you know that they knew how gray that city is if you don't know anyone in it <laughs> and i will always treasure that orchestra because they saw me as a human being and not as an adversary mm. and so that 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 i would love and i must say it is getting better brass players worldwide are less like new york taxi cab drivers than they used to be <laughs> um and i think you know at the and one bit of advice i always give my students and i learned from again good good experiences don't psychoanalyze the orchestra in front of you if they're being aggressive, it's not always about you. Sometimes I remember in Bern there was an older oboist, and I and I was a really young conductor in 27, 28. And he would always look at me with a scowl and, and just be the most horrific humor and you know send back nasty comments and, and, and but basically just sit there with his oboe scowling the whole time. And I thought he hated me. And at one point about maybe two years into my job there. I, 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 I just asked the principal flutist whom I got on well with, what's his problem? And he said, oh, no, he really likes you. He thinks you're very interesting. He has terrible hemorrhoids. <laughs> he's sitting on hemorrhoids in constant physical pain, and that's why he's sitting there scowling. And that's where I like, don't psychoanalyze the orchestra. Don't give the aggression any amount of thought. I mean, be honest. And sometimes it is bloody obvious that, that they're going against you. Yeah. But not, it's not always fun. So yeah. don't get in their brains. Just do your job and deal with it. But I would love for orchestras to treat conductors as human beings and conductors, hello, treat orchestra musicians with respect of what they're doing is also really bloody difficult. Just be a little bit more humble. And um, and and not slap their hand the entire time. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? I have a feeling the garden's going to be involved. Gardener is something <laughs> I mean, I seriously thought in, uh, at one point one of my burnouts to 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 take a professional course in gardening and, and doing yeah. this professionally. Um, thank God um, I, I didn't, but but um, but because um, I don't like bad weather. But um, uh, but I adore gardening. Uh, the other thing, and my partner and I have, 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 have con talked about this quite a lot. Of what would we do if we ever retired and you know wanted to? Uh, I'm opening a rescue pet center, working mm. with animals. Um, uh, and there's something in me, the opera person that always regretted and always dreamed in my fantasy life of being an actor, not a musician, being an actor, mm. especially improvisation. And even though I've never done it, I, I watch on YouTube impro improvisation troops and things like Mischief Theater obsessively. Um, and I tell my students, if you get the opportunity to, uh, as a hobby, join an improv course, mm. I think, the things you, the yes and bit of, of improvisation as an actor, really, especially uh, in terms of conducting um, concerti, accompaniments, mm. operas, uh, the yes and approach of improvising with a, another great mind, not necessarily coming in with any, it's hard. Yes, you have to come up with the idea. You have to be a partner on the stage with Stephen Nesselis or whoever. I mean, they demand 
as Anya Celia once told me, they, she, uh, the great German soprano, yes. um, she needed to have a sense of, 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 she needed a sense of resistance from the conductor, something for her to push against. Right. Uh, I love that concept. It's not aggressive mm. pushing you back, but she needed to feel an energy from the conductor that then she could push back against, in other words, like a tennis game. Yeah. Um, and, and the concept of being open to anything that's thrown at you and deal with it and then make something positive out of it. Uh, I would think an improv course for young conductors could be only beneficial. So I would love to be on a stage. And I was, uh, I remember talking about Sir Willard about his um, experience, Willard White, uh, yes. uh, Sir Willard White, about his experience doing Othello, not Othello, Othello with Trevor Nunn. And the hardest thing he, he said is suddenly he had no composer to work with. He had <laughs> yeah. his own composer. He had no one telling him the timing. He had to come up with the timing of how to deliver a sentence. Yeah. And he found that, and I would just love to have explored that if I were younger and more energy than I have now. And finally, Mark, if the world were to end tonight, what would be your choice of final meal and drink? Okay. A very personal answer, two answers. Mm. Um, so I don't expect anyone to relate to this, but then very personal answer. My grandfather on my mother's side, my grandfather every 4th of July would have a barbecue. Ooh. And because it's an early childhood memory, I still smell, taste, his barbecue sauce, the, I, I mean, probably I came to it as an adult from the outset, I find it probably dreadfully overcharged. But as a young kid who knew nothing, that became a really treasured mm. um, taste in my mouth. It meant home, it meant comfort, it meant my grandfather. So I want to have one of his barbecues. And my father could, in the same way, um, could make a, a, what Americans called sloppy joes, Germans called it I think pulled, pulled pork, mm -hmm. um, but in America it's called Sloppy Joe's. Um, and he had just his own special re um, recipe. And again, we grill it and this is a childhood memory and it just means home. Mm -hmm. So those two meals I won't have tomorrow, especially since um, in two days, it will be the year anniversary of my father dying. And so I do think about that quite a lot. Well, I'm sure you would, and, and it's a it's a difficult time for you. Oh, um, good luck linking with that. I'm definitely uh, no, no. Uh, uh, yeah. What I will say is, as somebody who is an, a lover of barbecue sauce, I put it on things that it really shouldn't be on. Mark, uh, I know exactly why you would choose that, and uh, I know, for instance, I'm going to probably order my takeaway for my tea, and it will be covered in barbecue sauce. Um, but, but there is a slight, you know, now to pretend to be intellectual, there's a Proustian thing about that, you know, how the Madeleine suddenly opens up yeah. thousands of pages of memory about history. But it's just the taste of the Madeleine, Madeleine dipping into the tea. My grandfather's barbecue sauce, my father's sloppy joe, uh, opens up a world of memories. Yeah. Yeah. It's not necessarily about the taste. No, it's the memory. But I can still, I instantly can go back to that spot and taste the barbecue in my mouth. Yeah. And taste the sloppy joe. Yeah. So that, that, so pardon me for being a bit sloppily romantic and, and, and sentimental, but that's 
that has to be my answer. I'm, you know, I could care less about going to a five-star restaurant to get in my life. Look, um, I'd like to, but, but <laughs> someone else is paying. But, um, but that's not what that's not what um, will send me off into the next life, shall I say? You know, looking back in the memories of your your recently uh, deceased father and your grandfather. Um, you know, food is the sort of thing that can do that. And memories are something I'm going to have with this chat because you've delved all the way back into your memories and told me so many amazing and fascinating things that I know the listeners are going to love. And one day I hope uh, to do it again soon. And one day I hope to come and watch you teach in Vienna. Um, mm-hmm. Whether I ever whether I ever asked for a, for a stringer uh, to my technique in the future is another thing. But uh, thank you, Mark. And I hope to meet you very again very I soon. I have enjoyed it thoroughly. I, I, my word, the questions are just, again, sorry for babbling. <laughs> sorry for going on. But that's what happens when you give, when a student or a colleague like you gives me a great, intellectual question to hang my hat on okay watch me go uh so i good luck in editing this to this <laughs> lengths but um i've enjoyed it enormously thank you so much i love your podcast a mic on the podium was devised and produced by michael seal with music by ben dawson next time i chat with a spanish conductor who spent seven years as a professional percussionist before becoming the assistant conductor of the CBSO in 2018. He's also been the associate conductor of the Oiskadiko Orchestra in the Basque Country and is the principal guest conductor of the Orchestra Sinfonica di Milano in Italy. But until then, bye-bye. <laughs>